It's really hard to talk about the start of Americana and alt-country music without talking to Nan Warshaw of Bloodshot Records. So let's hear from her now, DaleWileyShow.com. Perfect timing. Are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. And so am I talking to Nan Warshaw? Yes, you are. <laughs> the famous Nan Warshaw. I thought it'd be great to talk. I thought it'd be great to talk to you about kind of the beginnings of Bloodshot, you know, and also your relationship with Lou Whitney. Sounds great. All right. And so let's start by just telling how you came to get Bloodshot started. You and other people came to. Yeah, well, really, Bloodshot began as um, just a hobby and a passion, Bloodshot uh-huh. Records. Um, we, at, at the time in Chicago, um, where where I live and uh, and where I grew up, although I left for long enough uh, till, and traveled a lot until I wanted to come back. Um, okay. <laughs> but it, but. But so in Chicago in the early 90s, um, the um, alternative rock scene had really gotten huge. um, Right. And and, um, I had been super involved in in punk rock in college and and after. And then the way, you know, the the major labels had co-opted um punk rock and right. um and you know and you know there were gap ads with you know yes. with songs <laughs> that i had loved to hear and, right. and stuff sure. like that so it had really turned so much of um what the music i had loved into commodities and and so i was certainly searching for um music that spoke to me in the same way punk rock did. Right. And, and in Chicago in the early 90s, there was this, um, there were these bands that were playing in the punk clubs and the underground rock clubs, clubs like um, Lounge Acts and the West End. Right. And there were a bunch of Wonderful. other little divey clubs. Um, and uh, in Club Dreamers. And, and anyway, so... There were a bunch of these little clubs and and within them and within the 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 you know underground rock shows there were these bands that all had a thread of some element of country and americana right. and roots running Definitely. through what they did and and it was it was those bands that really started grabbing me and that I gravitated towards because they um uh, they spoke the same language as punk rock lyrically in yes. in many ways right and it it was all about you know three chords and the truth and sure. uh and you know it was very um intimate and um but still energetic and right great and, and so stuff there, yeah so there were all these bands doing that in chicago at the time and i was djing 
um, in, in punk clubs and I started mixing in some country music and oh really pe- yeah and people would get pissed off and other people would love it <laughs> and right um, I, at the time I was like this is this is punk to throw you know some country in with yes, punk rock and if it made people angry <laughs> then I was pushing boundaries and doing what I right? needed to do and so <laughs> definitely um, and so in doing that um I was uh, asked, uh, or I asked to guest DJ um, at this one punk club, and um, I wanted to do a country night, not just, you know, throw okay. in occasional country songs. And awesome. the owner of the bar said, um, well, I don't like that stuff, but I know some of the regulars would, so go ahead. <laughs> and so I did a country night at this punk rock bar. And Al Jorgensen was there um, among oh, other wow. people. From ministry. And, yeah, from ministry, right? And he uh-huh. he started raving about it, saying, "This is great! You have to do it all the time." And I said, "You go tell the <laughs> you go tell the owner that because I don't think he necessarily cares to hear it from me." So then Al right. goes and talks to him and comes back and says, "Okay." He says, we should do this every week. And I said, great. What does really? that mean? And he said, wow. um, you and I will just DJ. I said, okay, let's alternate. And so I was alternating weeks DJing country music in a punk rock bar with Al Jorgensen. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, for the first few years or first couple of years, he and I did that. And then he got too busy and was on tour and I got other people right. to fill in those nights and so a number of the bands in Chicago who were playing you know who had elements of country and roots rock in their music would come and hang out at the bar and then some of the bands even would play there although you know we couldn't charge at the door or anything we'd I don't remember if they played I think they just mostly played for tips at that point or maybe the owner threw them a little bit of money anyway um and and so it, it became kind of a hangout and at um the bar started when it started it was called Crash Palace and then it got bought and it became Delilah's. And okay. so at Delilah's is where I'm uh I met one of uh my partners in Bloodshot Records because he was coming up and requesting songs all the time. Oh really? Which um, one was that? Rob, yeah, that's where Rob and I okay. met. And right. um, then I already knew, um, or I met uh, Eric, uh, who was the third partner, yes. who was only involved in Bloodshot in the first few years. Um, was that Eric Babcock? Is that right? Yes, Eric Babcock, and okay. the other is Rob Miller. Yeah. And so, right. and so I knew Eric because, how did I know Eric? He worked at Flying Fish Records at the time. And um, and he was a fan of the band Killbilly. And I was an uber fan of the band Killbilly and eventually really? became, yeah, I eventually became their publicist. And this is before okay. Bloodshot. And right. so, um. So Rob and Eric and I came together and started brainstorming ideas of putting out a compilation of 
Chicago bands at that were part of that scene. And right. that's what uh, developed into our first release for A Life of Sin, Insurgent Chicago Country. I remember that, yes. And so we just, you know, you know would have meetings at a local bar and make notes on cocktail napkins and <laughs> then... And then go see these bands live and try and talk to them after their shows and say, hey, we're putting together this compilation. Would you be up for giving us a track? And sure. most of these, you know, a couple of the bands had releases out, but most of them um, had only cassettes uh, that they released that they used for booking purposes. They didn't have any professional um, distributed releases. Nothing right. yet on CD or LP. Um, and so for many of those bands, they were, you know, just delighted to get more attention in any way. And Definitely. It, and it wasn't a big risk for them to just hand over a song for us to put on this compilation. Sure. <laughs> yes. And then with some of the bands who had, I, I don't want to say, I mean, who were more developed, um, and not that any of them were huge at the time or anything, but right. um, the ones who um, had been touring, um, the Bottle Rockets and uh, Freakwater, yes. um, and yes. then John Langford, you know, it was it, it took more guts to go up and ask them if they'd give us a song, <laughs> and, and and for like the Bottle Rockets and um, Freakwater, Freakwater, we got a song that was on their. Uh, upcoming record and then for the bottle rockets they gave us um a live recording um of of a song and so um it was all different ways that we got the songs but then for um getting a track from john langford i asked him if he'd give us a song and he said sure i'll write something and then okay. um you know i don't know if it was a week or two later he called me up and said oh I got I got the song. Um, you want to hear it? And I said, sure. He's like, well, come over and pick up pick it up, which back then meant pick up a cassette of it. Right. Sure. And so I went over there, and he was um, rehearsing at that time with um, Steve Golding and Tom Ray, and I'm trying to uh, think of who else might have been there. Um, I remember they were both there, and. Um, and then he gave us this cassette and it had the song Over the Cliff on it. And, you know, we went back and all listened to it together and it it nearly brought tears to our eyes. We're like, he wow. knows what we want to do better than we do. <laughs> you know, he, and he certainly captured the aesthetic um, of what we were well, hoping to become. Definitely. What I want to say then is there was some big releases in the late 1990s. And just tell me about how this label grew. Well, uh, so Bloodshot Records started completely organically. And, um, right. and in the early, first couple of years, as one release broke even, then we'd say, oh, now that this one broke even, what should we do next? And right. so there, was, <laughs> there wasn't any expectation that it would turn into a business. You know, of course, right. that, might, it, that was a dream, but we, it, it would have been absurd to count on that. 
Um, yes. So, so in the early years, it was just, you know, what do we do next when the last record broke even and we had $1,000 <laughs> to invest in something next? Um, sure. But then um, I think it was like four, three or four years in, um, we were fans of Alejandro Escovedo and right. trying to, um, you know, tell him that that we you know, how, how we wanted to work with him and how if he gave us a chance, you know, we would bust our ass for him. And right, I sure. Think that, I think that attitude helped us in general because it, so many artists who worked with major labels were so used to the labels not caring and treating right. everything cookie cutter, whereas we were genuinely enthusiastic and serious right. fans. fans and so Definitely. if it was a low risk they could give us a a chance to you know sure. to try and do something and so with alejandro um he had a record that was um really live and so um and recorded all across you know in many different venues um across the country. And so that would have been something, um, I guess, not normal for a major label to release because they at all wanted polished studio things. And so that's when, you know, he decided to let us put out more miles than money. And so that was really um, a huge step up. I'll say before that, we put out the old 97s record and um, and we'd put out, you know, a, a couple Waco Brothers records and Moonshine sure. Willie and a couple others, but um, right. and the compilations. But I mean, at that point, old ninety sevens weren't um, weren't yet a, a bit a sure. household name. Well, who knows? Right. A household name in in my world, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and so they they hadn't um, developed their big fan base yet. Um, so, I mean, I think Alejandro was really the step where it felt like we were um, taking on a responsibility because okay, he was married and had kids and, you know, he wasn't just depending on, you know, on us to put out a record and have it be fun. He also needed sure. to make some money on it. And so, Right. That was that was kind of a turning point, I think, where we felt like we were going from being more of a hobby to um, uh, something more serious. Where, and yes. I hate, I mean, I guess the term is a business, but a business where someone else was counting on us for their livelihood. Definitely. And and, and that, yeah, of course, it, yeah. Go on. I so clearly remember not only the first compilation because i remember that you know when it first came out but i clearly remember the ryan adams record definitely right yeah so the Tell ryan me about adams that. yeah well um within the whole uh, at that point national or international circle of people right. who were um geeking out on alternative country or um, insurgent country or whatever you want to call it. I mean, at that time, there was very little critical language 
the term Americana was just beginning to be used. And we coined the term insurgent country. And then then years later, tried to live that down. And now I kind of like (laughs) it again. But at any rate, um, so um, uh, Ryan was playing in the band Whiskey Town. And we were friends with them. We were, you know, the bands we were already working with were playing with them. Um, You know, every when Whiskey Town toured, you know, they stayed at my house and slept on my floor. And yes. And and so um, it 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 was, you know, again, a very natural um, relationship. Um, I was friends with Ryan. you know, he and I would have, you know, three, four a.m. phone calls where some yes. girlfriend of his was breaking his heart and he'd call me and we'd talk, sure. you know. And so we were friends and, and that's how it came about um, where he was in the process of signing to a major label and right. he had um, this record that he that he wanted to do that was very stripped down and it wasn't, and it was um, more country and more folk than um, what the major label wanted wanted of his. And so he had that record that they weren't as eager to release. Um, Right. (laughs) And so he offered it to us and it was understood that he was in the process of signing with a major label he would give us this one record and um and and then go on to a major label um right now that record and the Alejandro record uh which was uh that well i guess it was a second or or Alejandro rec- album um were around the same time and so both of those were more expensive than anything, any record we'd ever done before. And so, sure. Um, so we had to find a way to fund, fund them. And we didn't want to put all the, we didn't want to put all the other artists at risk for us taking these risky right. moves by spending these, what we thought were huge dollars, but certainly <laughs> yes. were just a pittance to the major label budget. Sure. Um, and so we just uh, t- took our own money and kept it, you know, and basically it was loans, personal loans of our own money that we used to fund those two projects, um, which happened within like a year or two of each other. And yes, and so so we invested that money with the idea that if it broke even, we'd pay ourselves back. Right. And thankfully, you know, it did. But even Ryan's Ryan's record, Heartbreaker, um, that, you know, it wasn't a sudden hit or anything like that. In fact, I couldn't get any radio play for it on any commercial radio stations. I got some college airplay, but that was it. And, And back then, radio was how you promoted records besides, you know, print media. It was radio. And right. And in the, you know, in the 90s, even college radio was afraid to play anything with a twang. They were, yes. they thought that, 
Yeah, they thought that it was, um, you know, not cool because they didn't think of anything like that as being punk rock, even though right. here we are coming out of punk rock and, you know, move and discovering this, you know, uh, hard country or, um, and it spoke to us and clearly to many other people, but it took a while for a lot of people to come around to it. And there's still, I still know, you know, a lot of people who grew up with punk rock today who make jokes about, oh, it has a banjo in it, as if that's somehow backwards. <laughs> yes. You know, when exactly. I love, I love the sound of a banjo. It's so percussive. Definitely. And, um, anyway, uh, so, so in the, you know, when we put out that Ryan Adams record, Heartbreaker, um, you know, it was a slow build. and. And in many ways, not that different of a build like Robbie Folks's first record. Yes. Um, yeah, Country Love Songs, Robbie's record, um, you know, got it sold more each year after it was released. Um, I mean, sure. I, th I think it doubled in sales in the second year and doubled again in the third year after it was wow. released, which which is not typical in the music industry. Usually records sell the most, you know, in the first few months after sure. release. They don't keep right. building. But I think because these artists were um, were started in a very underground place, it was a slow build. And this was all free, you know, music sharing on the Internet. So sure. things didn't happen right. as fast either. It definitely was a different world back then, but was the Robbie Folks was that con the connection with Lou or what was? How did that come about? Yeah, well, Robbie um, was is Chicago based, and um, we used to uh, go see him playing um, when he was playing in Special Consensus. He'd play around Chicago, and he'd play right. at this. There was a rockabilly bar that had. Um, or it was it a rockabilly bar? There was a bar that had a rockabilly night, and he would um, play there, uh, and I would go there to uh, you know to hear the bands, but also to, to dance and sure. Um, and so that's where I first saw Robbie was you know just playing in a local bar in Chicago, but I could see you know right away his guitar playing was amazing and oh, mind boggling yeah. and and then I got to hear some of his songs and was further blown away and right <laughs> and so then um he was on our on our first uh compilation as well, and then um talked to us when he had an album to put out and it was an album um country love songs was an album that he had recorded with steve albini and okay and steve albini is known for um you know his punk rock. being yeah for punk rock and we sure. were pleasantly surprised that robbie had chosen to work with him and uh -huh. the record was robbie's record was more um traditional country than what we than the direction we thought we were going at the time. Sure. But yet, but um, with Steve Albini as a 
as having recorded it, it made more sense for us. And then, you know, when we really dug into the record, besides it just being brilliant, um, it, you know, the lyrics uh, were punk rock and it, sure. it, the whole aesthetic, you know, fit what what we loved and what we were doing. So, um, sure. so we we put that record out and um oh and yeah robbie already you know knew lou whitney (laughs) and and he had um recorded a couple of the songs most of it was recorded at albini studio um but then uh, a couple of the songs the scrapple song and you break it you pay were recorded a little bit after that i mean a little after the time with um, Albini, but they were recorded at Lou's studio called The Studio in Springfield, Missouri. (laughs) And and it features Lou's band, The Skeletons. Um, And then Lou brought in Tom Brumley. um, He did. Sure did. Yeah, the pedal steel player who's, you know, of Buck Owens and the Buckaroo fame. Yeah. Which was pretty, you know, amazing for Robbie to have the chance to have Tom Brumley on his record. And Robbie yes, was definitely. certainly honored and blown away with his uh, performance. Um, so uh, so Robbie had recorded um, a couple of those songs um, with Lou and has, I mean, he has a long relationship with Lou and had done a bunch of other recordings with him. And then, I mean, I also knew Lou just from, you know, the scene as well. I mean, the scene back then, the alt country or whatever you want to call it was (laughs) pretty small. And well, the bottle um, rockets too, you know, he had a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Lou would come to Chicago to see shows sometimes and I'd see him at lounge acts or other places. And Right. I think he was at some of the early South by Southwest um, as well. And um, and he was friends with Roscoe, um, Eric Amble, yes, who was also a definitely. producer. Yes. And so, I mean, it was that circle um, that I knew Lou through. Uh, and I and visited... So, uh... I visited the studio in the mid to late nineties. I'm not sure of the year, but I was okay. going through Springfield. Um, w- there were some bloodshot showcases we had. Um, I think one was in Des Moines and the other was in Lawrence, Kansas and and one in okay. Kansas city. I think that was it anyway. And so I stopped in Springfield for the afternoon and, um, and I had lunch with Lou and then went to the studio and he gave me a tour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so what do you think of Lou? How you know, what do you think about him all these years later? Now oh that my he's God. gone. What a you know, an amazing talent, but he was always super friendly and right. um and understated and you know, uh, I mean it just really welcoming and unassuming and if you met him you'd have no idea of the amazing people he'd worked with and all the bands he'd been involved with and right you know all that he'd done 
and been a part of creating. And so tell me, how did you hook Lou up with Exine Cervica? Well, that was interesting. So Exine was living in Missouri um, on a farm um, at the time and was looking to record. Uh, we had just, uh, you know, re we'd been reaching out to her and the other members of X about diff different right. things, including the knitters. And and so, um, and then Exine, you know, graciously allowed us to put out a couple of our records. And so um, we were talking to her about where to record and she didn't want to go to a big city. She wanted to stay somewhere near. And sure. when, and so it was just seemed natural. I said, you know, go meet Lou Whitney, go check out the studio, see if it's what you'd like. And it worked. And, and so, we introduced them and she made um uh the record somewhere gone there and well, that is um, very very cool lou, lou plays on it a bit and joe terry who's also in the skeletons and the morals right. yes and then we also had dex romweber play keyboards oh. on it too wow that's a great name for the flat duo jets yes Yes. Again, punk rock royalty, definitely. Yep. And <laughs> Bloodshot put out um, uh, four, I think I'd have to look up the number of Dex Romweber records, and they're all pretty great as well. So, yeah. I encourage anyone well, yes, to check those you know, out. You guys too. had to do everybody. Talk about uh, a record that took off. That was Bloodshot for sure. And so, what are you doing now? What's next for you? Well, um, I'm kind of in between things right now. Um, I, I left the day-to-day -day of Bloodshot uh, just over a year ago, and um, I've been, you know, doing a lot with the city of Chicago lately. Um, really? Wow. Yeah, I'm on the, um, um, on the steering committee for Year of Chicago Music which started okay. in 2020 and was going to just be 2020, but with the pandemic <laughs> yes. canceled right. so many of the festivals. Um, it's been extended to 2021, which I think is okay. great because we can get a, do even a lot more. But even so, the Year sure. of Chicago Music is really a way to... Um, uh, to showcase the great music that is already in Chicago. And Chicago has right. had such a fantastic music uh, community for decades. But but Definitely. from the world perspective, much of it's been under the radar, um, even though we have, you know, great music. And before the pandemic, uh, it was, you know, live music every night of the week of in sure. every genre. Um, and you could, yes. there was more music to see than you, great, great music than you'd ever have time to possibly see. Right. Sure. And so, so I've been involved with that, um, with the city and on some subcommittees within that steering committee. And then I was on, I did some grant reviewing for the city of Chicago too, for artist, individual artist grants. And that was fun. Oh, wow. But then. Yeah, so so that's how I've been staying engaged um, in the music scene. And in addition, I've been um, managing my uh, my partner's band, 
Uh, okay. Blackfriars Social Club is Mark Bannon's okay. um, band, and they have a new uh, release that just came out yesterday. Um, well, where is that? Where do I find that? Um, I can send you the links. Um, Please but it's do. Black, yes. Yeah, Blackfriars Social Club, and it's on all the streaming services, Bandcamp, Spotify, and um, I'll, sure. I'll get those links to you as soon as we're done talking. Definitely do, and it's been so fun to catch up with you and hear all about how Bloodshot got started. DaleWileyShow.com